What is up, Asymmetry? How y'all doing? Oh my goodness. Uh, a podcast long overdue with a legend in the art, literally and figuratively, Jan Rentenar, a, a neighbor for us here at Mirai, a local ceramicist, a fantastic artist, and somebody that I've been working with since the conception of Mirai, uh, stopped in today in celebration of her recent body of work. Uh, to talk with us about her ceramic process and really what motivates her as an artist. Uh, tremendous discussion, fantastic friend, uh, and an absolutely wonderful collaborator that has really helped us push the envelope of aesthetics at Mirai. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. Jan Rentenar. I asked Ryan years ago to go through his burn pile, and he was like really hesitant because he was like, those are, I don't. And but he let me get two, and one's going to Washington D.C. coming up here. And then the I got this one, and David Komeji won it. He goes, I want you to get like a four foot stump that's hollow. Where do you find such a thing? Well, I'm up here, and I go, Ryan, can I look in here? And dang, oh my God, it's this tall. It had been partially burned. It's all black on one side, and then it has these little triangles where it came around. Oh, there's Ryan. Hello. I was telling about you let me have one of your trees that had died, and it's going to Washington, D.C. We got invited to go to a display there, so it's going to Washington, One of the trees, one of my trees that died? Yeah. I remember I was telling him you were hesitant about because it was, and so I was like, and they have been awesome. There's, it was like about this big, so it's just a perfect. Oh man, people have such a fascination with dead trees. It 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 haunts my dreams. <laughs> we're trying we're trying everything we can to uh, not Randy have that happen. Randy was thinking, oh, you want so? Yeah, like, right. I don't want to buy him, Randy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's one of those. That's one of those weird oddities of bonsai, isn't it? Yeah, the Deadwood's beautiful, but we're trying to keep the trees alive. That's the primary goal. Well, and one of them actually, though, was just a log that was from one of the tree, big trees here. Uh-huh. And David Komeji had asked me for a, a four-foot stump that was hollow. I'm like, oh, right. and I picked it out of your burn pile, uh-huh. stood it up, and the whole middle fell out. Oh, I was like, no freaking way. And it oh. was, we're going to use that up at the garden uh, in April. Uh-huh. It's going to be part of the big display. Oh, that's amazing. Isn't that something? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I'm so glad you came. Thank yeah. you. Thanks yeah, for making yeah. the time. You bet. You, you see bet. you see your ceramics in the studio. Awa- I saw awaiting, my horse. Yes, awaiting, yes. Uh, yeah, the horse has been here for... Yeah, that's total, an old guy. Total celebration. Yeah, and actually... Uh, a student of mine in New York had a tree oh. in one of your pots, and he's reduced the size of his collection. So I've got a vintage oh. uh, Jan OG. ceramic in the. It's an OG Jan ceramic in the studio right now. I think I might have saw it. I go, wait a minute. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's sitting down there by the black backdrop. But it's uh-huh, interesting uh-huh. because that's that's eleven or twelve years of age on one of your pieces of work and uh-huh. to see how the colors have changed oh, and yeah yeah and uh-huh. because the the colors do change yeah and it and it's been a very fruitful subtle change i uh-huh. think on the wood uh-huh. fired oh, surface yeah and and this is something this is something that i you don't know how ceramics are going to behave mm-hmm. under the pressure of the environment uh yeah. over time until you've put them in the environment under pressure over time yeah, yeah. And so to see that piece, you know, 
10, 12 years later and see how it's just subtly patinaed and aged and just become, you know, the original wood fire surface is quite, is quite shiny. Yeah. When you do, especially when you do the soda. Yeah. To see that slowly become more muted Mm-hmm. And to see the colors become a little more muted and uh-huh. subtle, it's it's like wow, there's really something here, and that's that was yeah. part of the reason when we were thinking, because we had your new body of work. Mm-hmm. I was thinking, man, this would really be interesting to talk with you about because I don't yeah. know that you necessarily, maybe you have gotten to see that, but I don't know if you've gotten to see your work age under the pressure of the environment. Well, you were the, the first time I ever saw. Well, I came up here and you had these beautiful pots outside. And I was like, what? It doesn't he take care of his pots? Right. And I was, and you were saying, no, I'm aging them. I'm aging them. And that's where I caught on to that. And I think it also speaks to that that clay is still letting things come in and out. And I think that's what I think of with your trees is I want, you know, if a pot is too sealed, I think it might be harder on the tree, you know, because it doesn't have the, yeah. right? Does yeah. that? And, this is the question, though. I mean, mm-hmm. this is such the question because technically cone tin is supposed to be fully vitrified, right? Porcelain would be. Porcelain Porcelain would be. gets really tight, but um, the wood fire that's going to, it's going to like 12. Uh-huh. And it's the clay body. It's what clay you're using. So some clays will be real super tight, um, but then the wood fire clay that I use... Um, <clears throat> has to be very open-bodied uh-huh. for me, for my larger figures. So I think that's why even at 12, it still is not going to hold water. It would weep. It would weep? Would, yeah. Okay. Well, that, which yeah, is terrible in a vase, and I get in trouble when I do my vases. But <laughs> for I think for bonsai, it's a positive, right? Well, this is interesting because, you know, we used to talk to Ron Lang about it, and he would say, no, listen, cone 10 fully vitrified. There's no engagement uh-huh. with water, oxygen, mineral content with the clay body. But that is not my experience either. Otherwise, you wouldn't have to glaze the inside of a mug or a vase like you're talking about yeah, right yeah but yeah. you do have to glaze the inside of it because it will weep and it and it and it is yeah. still porous at that temperature that it's fired at and that creates i think a lot of the mm-hmm. opportunities for patina to form yeah right? and you yeah. think about what clay body when i look at like japanese ceramics the more i've learned uh about the ceramic body in japan mm-hmm you know, it's a rapid dry, uh, rapid production clay body that they yeah. use that that has some malleability and porosity, which the wood mm-hmm. fire process demands some flexibility, right? Yeah. Because yeah. of the pressure that it's put under at those temperatures, it's got to have some degree of flexibility or else it cannot endure that. Yeah. yeah. And so it's like, well, that makes so much sense to me now because the, the patina taking 10 years, 12 years, 15 years, 20 mm-hmm. years to amass those sort of areas that accumulate that mineral content. Well, that's yeah, yeah. that's the clay body absorbing a lot of a lot of the minerality of the water of the fertilizer of the soils mm-hmm. and eventually mm-hmm. being sort of I would think full up and expressing that. Now, yeah, you yeah. know, now Tokutake and some other ceramicists have talked about it being a little different Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is interesting to talk yeah. to different ceramicists. Well, and I would never contradict Ron Lang on technical. Oh, oh <laughs> yeah, no, no. no I... <laughs> <laughs> but, the, but, but you just said the but per- For my experience, yeah. it just seems, and I had one clay body that was, I never glazed it. 
And it was, uh, you know, wasn't that, oh my gosh, I put something, I planted it. And then about three years later, I went, oh, this one ages very cool, mm. you know, and mm-hmm. I hadn't thought about that. You tend to think of the way it comes out, it's the way it's going to stay. Yeah. But like you say, the aging, and now I'm, I'm like, I've got my pots outside now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know that I actually have any idea how you ever got started doing ceramics. I, I was thinking about it as I was driving into work today. I was like, I can't tell you Jan's story of becoming a ceramicist. How did this happen? Well, my mother was a sculptor. And so she was always very supportive of me. So ever since I was a little kid, I was playing in clay. And then she was real involved in the Portland art scene. And so as a little kid, I got to go to these artist galleries. And then she had a friend who had Maybelle Clark, who had an incredible Japanese collection. And as a little kid, I'd wander around the house, and I think that was one of my starts of love of Japanese art. And then um, my brother, a pediatric neurosurgeon, was uh, started into bonsai, and then that's how I got into the bonsai field. And then Sharon Muth up at Bonsai Northwest, I was making small Japanese figures uh, based on legends. And uh, she said, Sharon brought out this funny little pot that was maybe five inches big, free form. And she said, you know, if you could make these, they don't import those. And I go, oh, well, I've never been a potter. I can't make, you know, and I said, I could make those. And so I started making them and uh, I entered the National Bonsai Pot Competition and I ended up a finalist. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, and but Sharon wasn't interested in a lot of pots, and I was still doing very well. And my sculpture was my main field. And then when I met you, and I was like, "Oh, so this is you were uh, uh, introduced me into the whole world of the big trees and that." Right. And so that's how I got. I left the bonsai pots for about ten, fifteen years, I think, and then came back meet? to it. Was that twenty ten when you got back, or was that? prior to that i was still so i came back from japan to kind of like organize my life here uh and there was another gentleman in saint helens that had realized that jan's work was holding kusumono at the national collection in dc and then he tracked you down because you were in St. Helens, Oregon, and he was in St. Helens, Oregon, and I was I was talking with him and it, because he was a friend of Randy's before I really knew Randy. And through that circuitous path, I saw Jan's work, mm. and then I acquired Jan's work from him. And then <laughs> and then Jan came to me to be paid for her work because there was a little bit of a misunderstanding, and that's how Jan and I came to know each oh, other. That's great. That's great. She that came to hit you so up for some yeah, money. Jan was like, somebody told me you have my work. I'm just trying I'm here to shake you I'm down. Just, I, no, no. She was like, I'm just trying to the way this was supposed to work is not how it worked. Do you think that I could be compensated for my work? And I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm double paying for your work, but sure. Right. <laughs> One of the many, one of the many points of confusion. Well, there was confusion. a tree in one, and I'm like, "Ooh, I think I can name my prize." That's right. That's right. We we had gone past the point of no return. My very first pygmy cypress went into a Jan Rentenauer pot. Oh, this is oh. great. This yeah. is a great story. Cascading pygmy cypress, free form Jan Rentenauer pot. So beautiful. 
so Pure beautiful. Magic. Original Bonesimerai <laughs> website, the OG site back in 2010. It was like the poster tree. Yeah, it's the whole thing. <laughs> really, it's this is good. It's a good story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then and then uh, and then you just you just took off. You just <laughs> boom. Well, started. and I think you have been really good to work with because you don't micromanage mm-hmm. and you. Uh, and I also have to sometimes remind myself that you can do anything with a pot. And I have right. to remember that students sometimes have a hard time looking at my pots, understanding because it's not an oval. It's not a square. It's not, you know, measuring is crazy. Yeah. You know, but I uh, being able to come up here and see your trees in my pots has been so helpful. Yeah. You know, then yeah. I, because I, I don't do bonsai. But I, it helps me understand, you know, what the needs are and how things work and stuff. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no, it's uh, it's been, it's always fun to have. My my ambition is not uh, informing the vessel because the vessel is informing me. Mm-hmm, you know, it's mm-hmm. such a, it's such an integral, and I think that's that was one of the perspectives I took on early on as I was seeing ceramicists in north america ceramicists mm-hmm. in europe deviating from the the traditional forms of japan and china that had sort of mm-hmm. you know created the foundation and the aesthetic and the function but weren't weren't necessarily reflective of the wildness of our material mm-hmm. here and sort of the spirit of of culture uh, i started recognizing wow this is a real opportunity for the vessel to start to inform my work and i mean i still mm-hmm. feel like uh, the ceramicists that we work with here tr- alter alter the aesthetic of my work tremendously, and I have mm-hmm. to I have to be very receptive to that. But that was one thing I think working with you, mm-hmm. I would I would say because we started working together so early on, I started experiencing that with your work very right off the bat, mm-hmm. you know. And then it was just like growing into that, like wow, this feels weird and uh-huh. different, and do I like it or not? And then it just became, you know, it's it. I don't know how you feel about this, but it became normal to feel challenged, and and then eventually, when I could settle into that discomfort of being challenged, it started to be very exciting. Yeah, yeah. To create with these vessels that generated this change of aesthetic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it's one of the things that uh, I think you've helped me with is too is it's not about the pot. You know, you have to you have to create a pot that has no ego, but it's not boring or plain, but right. it's like and that's what I kind of look at when I'm looking at bonsai pots is is this pot showcasing the tree or is it showcasing this the potter, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah. I think that's uh, is what I noticed with you too is is seeing where you can make a pot that makes a statement, but it's not still about the tree, right? You know, right? It's always about the tree. <laughs> well, it's also making a nice marriage. Yeah, too, yeah. Right? I mean, the, sometimes they complement yeah. each other so much, yeah. and it's like, well, this feels like the perfect pairing. Yeah, for yeah. the style of tree, or yeah, because you, know. you have taken there are some crazy pots, but if it's the right tree, yeah, you know, yeah. it's that I've uh, do Ikebana, and sometimes these containers like no way, and then yeah. David Komeji, you put the right thing in there, and it's like, oh, it yeah. worked, yeah, yeah. But is I think basically though, and I always keep in my mind is it's got to showcase the tree, mm-hmm. you know, it can't say too, you know. 
Yeah, it's, I mean that's interesting. I like the I like the notion of marriage because you know mm-hmm. there's so many different relationship dynamics that you can create shape, inside. angle, color, uh, line. detail, feature. Yeah, it just never yeah. contact yeah. point, height, width, angle. Yeah, but I also think like sometimes opposites attract. Yeah. Yeah. And that can work. And sometimes you have to have total compatibility of shape, form, style, gesture. Uh-huh. And then that works. Mm-hmm. And it's like you never know. Mm-hmm. At least I I yeah. think one of the things that uh one of the things that I got from working with somebody who was so strong minded about his belief and his approach in terms of Mr. Kimura was how innovative and impactful you know and i and i have to believe a lot of artists that have had an impact in their field architects artists etc have had sort of this singular mindedness of their Mm -hmm. approach and what they wanted to explore what they wanted to say with their body of work but Mm i i personally saw that and felt like man how much more is out there that you're missing because you're so and mr kimura probably couldn't have had the impact that he has had on bonsai Mm -hmm. you know in the broader sphere of society especially in japan but certainly being a catalyst for the growth of bonsai in the western world without being so singularly minded to his approach and his exploration and being an apprentice to him i went there to study that so all good. I don't, I'm mm-hmm. not in any way saying that that was a negative thing, but I walked away with something different, which was what happens when collaboration takes place? What happens when you don't have a preconceived notion of the container and its, and its aesthetic purpose as a subservient thing to the tree? Uh, and, and then what happens when you allow collaboration to inform the ultimate outcome of a of a composition, mm-hmm. and I think that's I think that's been at the forefront of a lot of what Mariah's accomplished, honestly. And and I still working with your work. I we just put a spruce in your the big beautiful rectangle. Uh, oh, yeah, what? it's it's oh, really what? it's really something. Um, and seeing students utilize your work, there's several of your pots were utilized this past weekend. Uh, with students and stuff and it's like oh yeah no there's still so much ground to be explored i don't even think we're i still feel tip of the iceberg as far as where we're at so while you're saying that i was kind of thinking you know you've you've established i think uh an organization for people to understand how to pick like the front of a tree Mm -hmm. baseline and features Mm -hmm. and i'm thinking about jan's pots which can also have multiple fronts i think with some of the shapes that you Mm -hmm. utilize Mm -hmm. it do we should we be thinking like that does jan Mm -hmm. do you think like that do you try to when you look at your work do you think hey i really like the way this special feature this color this this angle of a curve you know what do you what do you look at i guess i'm I'm just curious because that's it's like it's like a combination compatibility thing that that i think we look at it from our side too you know i think uh because of my i do saga goyu ikebana and we are the same way there is a definite front to our um arrangements and so we're always telling people no 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 stand here stand here in front and so i think that uh, um influences my pottery is i do know that you guys see a front and a back that there is going to be a front to this pot that you're going to see it from there's a definite angle and you relate to that you relate to that approach yeah. Yeah. That's and then, and that's where it helps me when I look at how you place a tree. Oh, okay. That's where he saw it, mm-hmm. you know? And then I think too with you, 
I love Cascades, and I think sometimes our pots are great, but it has that one dip has to be in that right place. Right. You know, it's uh, that's I think is tough about the free form, huh? Is that they have? But are you? But are, mm-hmm. as you're making it, are you choosing that, or are you just sort of making something that is intuitive in the moment as you're making? How does that yeah, work for yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, it's gonna. Um, it, and I think what's interesting is with freeform, you're manipulating it, but you don't want it to look like it's manipula- manipulated. Mm-hmm. And so it's that playing with it, but not finding that when you're done, you know. And and so I, I'm aware of where the front is. I'm kind of thinking about that, but it's really the overall. And it just each one is, and that's why it's... Um, Difficult for me to do commissions mm-hmm. with a free form because mm-hmm. I really kind of am going with what's happening with the clay at that time and what type of clay it is. And so if, um, that's where, too, you know, me and my dimensions and people will ask, you know, they just agonize over these measurements. Yeah. Well, well, I think I want it. And then I'm just kind of, and I, I'm, well, it's almost 17 inches. It's, yeah. it's close to 18 because <laughs> yeah. I'm not a number person. And yeah. so that's where, you know, sometimes the commissions are a little difficult because I, I think that I'm close to the measurements and they're like, well. <laughs> yeah. Well, and this is this is also part of knowing a ceramicist. Yeah, you know, as yeah. a, as a boneside practitioner, I think a lot of people feel like, well, pff, I mean, I gave a dimension, like you should be able to do that, and yeah. it's like, no, no, yeah. no, 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 you have to know, you know, in each. I think I don't think in the Western world, I think we're crossing this bridge where people are starting mm-hmm. to understand the depth of what you know what is involved in bonsai and starting to understand that hey, th- hey, each component of this is a reflection of the individual making it mm-hmm. and ron lang you know was a geometric he lived in a you know frank lloyd wright student of frank lloyd, R- lloyd wright designed usonian home when he made the majority of his work in pennsylvania and so you know that environment informed him well you have a very creative, organic environment in which you're creating your work, which mm-hmm, I think is mm-hmm. visiting your studio is so special every time because it just has the it has like this almost like fairy dust kind of magic to it. It's like Jan's world, and I love it. It's authentic. Oh, it's it's so you. It's so you. And a lot you, of not for sale in there too. Yeah. You yeah. look at it, I'm like, oh, what about this? You're like, oh, that's not for sale. Oh, yeah. oh okay. Yeah, but it's like. But it's like that is what makes your pot so special. That's what gets mm-hmm. people, you know, excited about your pots and wanting to use your pots. But then when somebody says, "Ooh, I'm excited and want to use this," can you make this rigid constraint? And it's like, no, you you really have to understand that's not Jan. That's not Jan's process. Yeah, you know. And yeah. it's like um, there was a documentary that I watched a number of years ago called Cutie and the Boxer about a Japanese artist that would put on boxing gloves and he would have a massive painting and he would dip the boxing gloves in paint and he would just punch the shit out of this canvas. <laughs> I mean, and you're talking a f- like, a, like a 16, 20 foot long canvas and he's just punching and, 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 you know, dragging his gloves and getting more paint and splattering and hitting and, and until he was like physically exhausted and that was the end of the painting when he couldn't like lift his hands anymore right <laughs> and he would have like five or six of these paintings on display when a collector or a gallery or a museum would come to see his work 
And there was definitively always a painting that had the right whatever. Mm-hmm. The the, the, mm-hmm. mo- the mojo, you know, it had the right composition. He had hit in the right spots, dragged in the right spots. The quantity of paint in his gloves at those moments was spot on. And then there were others that were inspiring, but they just, that intangible quality of that one piece, yeah. inevitably yeah. anybody that went wanted that piece and that was the piece that he wouldn't sell. Well, and I think oh, you see it's like when the, Ryan say of... The guys who made the really valuable teapots, the Uh little teacups. Well, they made a thousand of them. Yeah. And they were doing them quickly. And it's like, that's what I feel like because I've been doing this as long as I have, there's, I have a sense to it. Mm -hmm. And you can, I think you can see where somebody's, when somebody's made something for the first time. And it's like, I don't, I've done Ikebana for 10 years. I don't make Ikebana containers Mm -hmm. because I know I would have to make a bajillion of them before I really got to where I had one that worked, you know? And so I think it's, and I was like with that guy, I would wonder what his background is. You know, he has a sense of, and some people would say, oh, well, I could do that. You think it's like Jackson you Pollock. Think, yeah, exactly. You, you think. think, but they have a sense about it. Yeah. There is, there's, and I think with the um, bonsai and ikebana coming from Japan, both of us have learned so many rules. And I think what's nice for us is we're away from that and now we can kind of interpret that. Yeah. It's like you're saying, and interpreting it for the Northwest. Mm-hmm. You know, the um, I like with the Kusumonos, I was noticing we have one with the uh, succulents that we got from the basalt cliffs yeah. down at the downtown St. Helens. Yep. And to me, and I, in Ikebana, I love when we use rhododendrons and Northwest um, materials. You know, to me, that's so, because it's like the Oregon coast, you know. Yeah, regionally specific. Well, and I think I think you touch on something that like when does when does craft cross over into art? Mm-hmm. You think you could splatter paint on a canvas and make a Jackson Pollock. You think you could put on some boxing gloves and make, you know, work that would be just the same as this gentleman's work and then, you know, you do it and Inevitably, there's going to be a sophistication of individual on the higher end of having viewed a lot of art that's going to look at uh, a knockoff and and be able to very very effortlessly see the difference. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, now that's that's here, you know. And I feel like it's the same with George Nakashima and his mm-hmm. live edge tables and everybody making live live edge tables. Not a single person has come even remotely close to touching on George Nakashima's work that I've ever seen. And it's not just like George Nakashima went and got a slab and because it had a live edge, suddenly it's art. No, 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 no. It's the proportion. It's the Mm -hmm. use of the wood. It's the presentation of it, where he puts the foot, the choice of the foot, the thickness of the foot, the finish of the table, the height of the table, the size of the table, the way the table exists in a space that he intentionally put it in, et cetera, et cetera. That is what made George Nakashima's work irreplaceable. And when George Nakashima died, of course, you can carry that tradition forward with another artist. This is really the challenge, I think, in Japan, you know, Mm -hmm. and in Jiro Dreams of Sushi. I don't know. Have you seen that documentary? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody's saying, man, his 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 oldest son that's going to take over Jiro's restaurant is doomed. (laughs) This was a this was a common, common expectation and assumption in Japan of the next generation of a bonsai artist in a bonsai family was screwed. 
mm-hmm. if their dad reached greatness, if their father, you know, or mother for that matter, reached greatness, that did not necessarily translate unless that individual was able to take it in their own direction and elevate that to a point where it was respected. And then you say, okay, well, what is elevating it to that that point? For George Nakashima, for Jackson Pollock, for this gentleman in Cutio the Boxer, for, um, you know, a, a Daijuin Suzuki, uh, uh, proprietor of Daijuin. Prolific body of work. Prolific body of work. And you just said it. What yeah. makes a Jan Rintanar pot uh, stand alone from an educated eye with all of the other people that are making a freeform vessel at this point in time, mm-hmm. you have produced a prolific body of work under a very high expectation of quality. And now it is an express, it is like breathing for you. It's an expression. It's an extension of mm-hmm. you. And you as another individual can never create a Jan Rentenar freeform pot, no matter how hard you try. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. 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 And, and, and I, that, that gets me so excited. Yeah. That that intangible when you put in that kind of time and you you know need your brain and and try to squeeze out all of the inputs that you've had and infuse that into your body of work over a thousand pieces, two thousand pieces, three thousand pieces. It doesn't matter how hard somebody tries; they're never going to duplicate that. It might look close, but it will never look the same. Can't do it. I'm curious to see in the future. Um, like the uh, guy that my studio, Charlie Pyatt, who's a potter for raised a family of four on pottery. And oh my God, his skill set is incredible. And I don't know in this next generation if there's going to be people who dedicate themselves right. to a life of doing pottery. Mm-hmm. And I see a lot of them, we're experiencing that with Ikebana. People want to make like a six months commitment. Well, you're not even, you know, traditionally it was a lifetime, Mm -hmm. you know, and so it's interesting to see what's going to go in this, you know, because people are into the experience, but to really commit to it um, in the craft world, I'll be curious to see. I see that in Boneside too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, there's a reason that it took six years as as a basement period of time to apprentice in Japan. And then you see Mm -hmm. people apprentice for two years, three years. It's like, the intangible, the immeasurable value of those last two to three years, you know, in terms of that foundation. And then, you know, there's a lot of people that make great bonsai and then they kind of go do something else and they drift here and they drift there and then maybe they make a little bonsai. Maybe their attention is 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 really spread thin. This is something that I think about a lot because I do have a lot of interests. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I love stone. I love, I love metal. I love materials. I love architecture. I love art in general. Uh, I like to be out in the mountains and, you know, but, but one thing that I really do try to do is I try to pull all of that back to my bonsai approach because I was mm-hmm. never interested in, in being a jack of all trades. I always wanted to be a master of one. And so, you know, the temptation in modern society with the availability of imagery, video, uh, how-tos, tutorials, uh, accessibility to culture, material, uh, et cetera, is, man, you can do all of this stuff. And I do think, to your point, it probably is going to lessen the quality that eventually comes out of it. Um, you know, and decrease the quality of craft. And this has been a conversation in architecture for a long time. You well, know, and you, I think of it, like you're saying too, is I think uh, bonsai and ikebana, it's a practice. 
and it's I think it's good to to keep those going because it's like you say you're bringing your other experiences back to you mm-hmm. and it's a, a great centering yeah you know when you're sitting there with your tree working on that it's it's a, a meditation it's a practice yeah you know and that's what i find with the ikebana it's like sometimes i don't do very you know oh well it's a practice you know it's yeah. not always going to be perfect and sometimes i think and that's what's hard too is sometimes you have to make the ugly pot yeah. Sometimes you have to make a couple. Oh, you can't always huh. be thinking of That's this because you, then you get very cliche because you know what works. So you right. go, oh, well, I'm going to do this and they'll love it. But you have to keep being willing to try to make, you know, every once in a while have that ugly pot and break it. Mm. <laughs> this is also <laughs> tempting, like, oh, uh, no, 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 you know. That's so interesting. That's Jonathan Cross thrown in, into the desert. Yeah, huck it into the yeah. desert. Yeah. Do you have somewhere? Where do those end up? Do you have them at your place? Oh, yeah. They're all over the yard to ask my <laughs> husband when he mows, what are we doing with all this? <laughs> That's great. That's great. God, I never heard that. But but I do feel I do feel that, too, with Bonesight. You know, sometimes I miss it. Mm-hmm. And I don't I, I think, you know, kind of the measure of a professional is you sort of hit it more than you miss it. Yeah. Uh, I, and I think like when I watched Mr. Kimura, the definition of a shokunin, you know, a, a, a true sort of lifestyle professional and a traditional Japanese art is they is they hit it vast majority of the time. Yeah. And they miss very little. Yeah. And, and that's, the misses that's, are small misses. Maybe, yeah, maybe, right? maybe sometimes it's a massive miss. Polar you know, ball. I mean, he did he did some restyling work on some historical trees that were that was hugely controversial, and I think the aesthetic really missed it. I think it was at a point in his career where he was experiencing health issues, and you, it's undeniable. Hey, listen, it's a reflection of you. If you're not in a good space, if, oh, if you're not in a good yeah, space, yeah. like things can mirror. go wrong. Uh-huh, yeah, it's a mirror. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, but but it was like, oh, when those things happened, it really stood out, you know, and I think what you just said, you have to make the ugly pot if you're going to continue to push yourself, mm-hmm. if you're not going to settle into repetition, which yeah. then I think moves away from the art and becomes a craft again, yeah. you know, where you're yeah. just duplicating the process. Uh, I, I, I think you do have to make that. And it's interesting whenever I miss it here, you know, mm-hmm. which which, again, I aspire to be, you know, a shokening level professional where the vast majority of the time I, I, I hit it, but, but mm-hmm. I'm not there yet, you know? Mm-hmm. And so whenever I miss it, you do have to sit there and look at it. And unlike a pot, I can't smash it because it's a living tree that I yeah. love, you know? Yeah. So I have to sit and I have to suffer through the tree growing through that, recovering, getting to a point and, and trying to find it again. You know, mm-hmm, and that's the beauty mm-hmm. of bone size. I get to go, I get to circle back to it. Maybe I've matured a little bit more. Maybe I'm in a better headspace. You know, there have been a few years here at Mirai where, where things got a little tough and I just didn't have the same, I didn't have the same oomph. I didn't uh-huh, have that sixth uh-huh. gear on my work where I was really pulling all of the potential out of, every, uh, uh, of almost every tree that I touched and then finding it again, you know, when th- when things have shifted, adjusted, gotten better, you know, I've wrapped my mind around sort of, you know, the life experiences that that challenge were challenging, uh, and and finding it again and seeing that intangible quality return to the work was like, oh, that's okay, you know, another mm-hmm. another mm-hmm. you know notch in the in the uh, toolkit. Yeah, yeah. That you can pull on and and sort of start to better understand what uh, what is otherwise kind of an unexplainable quality to to work in the process. Yeah, 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 yeah. You have to deal with living. I was like, I do have it easier. 
I don't know that because I have have a lot of flexibility, you know, like things grow, things change. Like I do try to put the weight on the tree. You're sort of like, you're sort of like in your, and I think that's one of the beautiful things about the film that Ricardo made about you Mm -hmm. is like you really see as you're making in your studio, you see this thing happening before your eyes and it's like, oh, that's. That's happening right now. She's doing that right now, yeah. you know, and that is a product of the now. Yeah. When yeah. you're in your space where that is really that shokening expression, I think. Yeah, it's interesting. I can't, I find one of my weaknesses is I can't work in front of people. Mm-hmm. And people will say to me, oh, I'd love to come watch you work sometime. I'm like, well, 1 a.m. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> and I think that's why I like to work at night is I don't have anybody around. And it's like the same thing in the Ikebana. They want me to be a teacher and to start doing display demonstrations. And I just can't do it in front of people. I can't Mm -hmm. do my work in front of people for some reason. I don't finish it. I tend to get too sporadic about it. Well, your focus is probably pulled away a little bit too. Yeah. You're not even, now you're trying to share and explain versus just do and kind of work with what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Are you a night owl? Oh, totally. Yeah. Totally. Like what's your op, what's your optimal working uh, hours? From about eight till about one in the morning, one, one or two, morning. Yeah. and then it gets to about two, and I'm like Jan, you're starting to turn the clock around here, because uh-huh. uh-huh. <laughs> the rest of the world doesn't go on that clock. <laughs> hey, the tough thing is when you've got to get up and function the next day, though, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which maybe I don't know. You know, these are these are some of the things I don't know about your practice, but like. Do you just do you really have the freedom to sort of live in your artistic space and and function on your own schedule there or, or like how does that work for you? Um yeah, at this point I I it's uh my husband's retired. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> the studio gets to be a good place to hang out too. He's always around. Right. But uh yeah, it's uh I and I realize is I'm always walking through there, working on, and the pots, you know, they kind of have to go at their own time when the clay is stiff and stuff. So it's kind of continually walking through and checking on things and playing on things. But it's usually the nighttime is when I really, it was the best for me. Mm-hmm. To, and that, that it was so funny with the uh, wood fire. When Hiroshi, when I first contacted him, I sent him an email and said, hey, you know, I'd love to be on night shift. I stay up late at night. And he goes, well, no kidding. You said that at one in the morning. And I was like, oh. <laughs> well, then I get there and they're like so impressed at how I could stay up all night. I'm like, I never knew this was a skill set. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's a resume builder. You didn't even know. I, I had no idea. I was building value this whole time because typically everybody frowns on that, right? Right, like, right. Yeah, I uh, in the first few years at Mariah, every single tree I made here was created between 11 p.m. and 3 or 4 a.m. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In the original workshop up where the the guest house is now, it's just it was it was like that was when all the all the all the juices came together for me to really work. I don't I don't I, I, I looked into it a little bit. And, and uh, there's like some research about body temperature and your brain waves sort of hitting optimal, an optimal synergy between oh, the two to, huh. to, to generate creativity or uh-huh. the right sort of like creativity. And a lot of, for a lot of creative people that happens late at night. And so that, that for me was like, 
in the beginning as I was trying to figure out, well, what am I trying to do here? And I like had this like traditional training, but I also studied with this avant-garde person and like, I'm like working with this material. It was just, it was such an amalgamation of information that I was trying to process that that was when uh, my brain was the least busy and the most intuitive. And I really learned a lot Mm -hmm. being able Mm -hmm. to work like that you know it, it was totally counterproductive for normal societal behavior because i'm like waking up at 11 a.m i've missed appointments i haven't gotten to email you know it's like all of that stuff was a total nightmare but my creative body of work at that time was great yeah i really yeah. learned a lot i think it's like people there are some people who like to get up really early in the morning at yeah. 4 30 and i think it's that same thing it's that's to me there's like less expectations at night too you know it's like Totally. And then people are like really impressed. You work till one in the morning? Yeah. Yeah. I get up at noon, but. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Don't talk to me about the morning time. Yeah. Wow. That's interesting. Well, did your mom work like that? Like, is this, did she, did she work late at night as a sculptor or do you remember? No. Well, and what was hard for my mom was she was never, she had to fit it in around the family mm-hmm. and her work was never really taken seriously. And I remember we had it. All over the house, it'd be downstairs in the basement and stuff. And uh, but she never marketed her work, and uh, so it's uh, uh, interesting when I look back at her work. It was she did beautiful. It was animals and figurative work. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was uh, to see um, she and her, the other women that she knew were all professional women in Portland. When was it? It was back when they used to do the fashion ads were painted, and so she had this group of women. So it's interesting to to see these talented women how they were able to kind of get that. She did. My mother actually did uh, windows for the big stores mm-hmm. uh, downtown, and that when they used to be really fancy and stuff. And so that was the way she kind of did her, got her art into it. But I was fortunate. She was very supportive of me and was, gave me, a, I got to do a lot of classes and stuff. So, so when did, you had that influence from mm-hmm. her. So from a young age, were you working in her studio with Clay or was it high school or after, like, when did you really, these classes, her support, when did all of this start to sort of culminate in terms of like, oh, I'm going to. I'm going to really push to be an, an artist. Um, well, I always wanted, I always said I was going to be an artist. Mm-hmm. I, I remember my mom going, well, Jan, one of these days you're going to have to sell your art, so you're going to have to know math. And to this day, I hear that <laughs> voice, because my I'm doing taxes right now. I can't do math to save my soul. <laughs> and so mom was, I'm very, I am dyslexic. And uh-huh. so I had a very hard time learning how to read in school. Mm-hmm. And now I love to read, but, and I also, math was just a nightmare for me. But because my mom supported me as an artist, I never felt, uh, I didn't test well. And so it, it didn't show up in school. But then as once I graduated, I went to Evergreen State up in Olympia. And it was the perfect school for me because they recognized people who don't test. There wasn't the testing and all that. And I could, it uh, played on my strengths. Mm. And so for, I did four years, I have a Bachelor of Arts cool. and I majored in ceramics. So then that's where I learned all the technical. But what I felt was because I had been in so many classes, I was at the Pacific Northwest College of um, Arts and Crafts 
Pacific Northwest Arts and Crafts College. Used to be a little place in Northwest Portland, and I took classes there. In when I was in grade school and then in high school, I did classes at the art museum. Mm. Um, but what I found was I was getting too heavily into being technical. And it was very hard for me to just make something. I had to have somebody tell me what, okay, you're going to draw this. Oh, you're going to do that. And so that's where I think I started to learn that you have to make something ugly every once in a while. Uh, yeah, and not okay. just rely on your you know little things that you can do. And Evergreen was very inspiring to teach me about life you know that's what you bring to your work sure you know besides the technical wow so did you did you grow up in portland or did you grow up in columbia county portland oh you grew up generation portlander yeah and i came out here and i'm like i have these country kids it was like who are these kids are driving the trucks and (laughs) (laughs) right right yeah yeah yeah. so let me just ask you just because living in columbia county it may only be 26 miles from portland but it is it is an, a different uni- than that. it's a different universe out Isn't here it? yeah it, it had to have been wild you know even I, I mean in the 12 13 years that i've lived here i have seen a dramatic shift both in portland i mean and you know we've been through a pandemic we've been through um the black lives matter movement which which had a major sort of epicenter of of uh um protest and sort of a culmination of synergy in portland and whatnot uh and that th- those things have been sort of these like big uh events or happenings that have shifted things but even just like in the culinary coffee creative graphic design photography art sphere portland was you know sort of following this trend but like if i if i look back at history there was a book maybe called sin city that was written about portland or i maybe that might not be the correct title there is a book called sin city i think typically people associate that with las vegas but there was a book that was written about portland where they were saying there was a a moment where um there was a real crux turning point in portland's future and there was before or at the time that Las Vegas was like starting to be conceptualized, they were also looking at Portland as maybe like this like potential nefarious activity epicenter. Well, there's like more strip clubs here per capita than. Yeah. Like, so there's like nuances <laughs> of that, right? Yeah. It's in, yeah. it's really intense. And Portland has like Asking kind of for a friend. kind of a seedy history. It's an industrial city. It's. You know, it's pretty dark and dreary in the wintertime, so it feels like I always felt like Gotham City might be modeled after Portland City <laughs> or Port- Portland or Seattle or something, you know? Like, I just, it gives me that vibe, right? Coming from sunny Colorado, but I'm curious, like, you've been here fourth generation. You've been here for yeah. a long time. You've seen the narrative arc of Portland. Yeah, yeah. From and- when you were a kid to where it is now and everything in between. What's that? What, what, how, what has that been like? Well, it. It's. I think it. What's fun about Portland is there's so many different parts to it. And growing up, there was definitely the east side and the west side. You had the river in the middle, mm-hmm. and then you're only like an hour from the coast. So we every summer I was at the coast, you know, all the time, and oh, that okay. was really nice. But yeah, Portland and and Portland's always had an amazing amount of artists. Oregon does. There's an incredible amount of really good artists mm. in Portland and the and in Oregon. And I don't know what it is about this atmosphere. Now, me, I love a rainy day. 
To yeah. me, it's like, oh yeah, uh-huh. and it's like I, I enjoy the sound array, the whole thing. You know, I don't get upset about it at all. <laughs> uh, well, water's a big influence, then, right? I mean, I know like the coast you said and the yeah. river. And oh I, yeah. Didn't, don't, didn't you tell me before your family has a place on? We're on the, the uh, my grandmother bought a property out on the Willamette. And we're right yeah. at the Canby Ferry. Wow. And uh, I was just out there. And um, yeah, and I think that you look at those old growth firs, mm-hmm. you know, and we've got about five of them on the property. And you just, we have a big old black walnut. And the neighbors are complaining about mowing the lawn with the black walnuts. But I said to them, you know, when are we ever going to see a black walnut that big again? These big trees that are going down, I don't know if we're going to see them, you know, uh, that they're going to be able to grow like that again. And it's a whole ecosystem up there. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, I think that's been in, you know, the textures of those big firs that, you know, it's just the bark and all that is so amazing. And I think that has influenced me, I'm sure. Yeah. And the ge- it seems it seems like I want to come back to the big old tree thing, but it seems like the geology too, mm-hmm. especially in the work that you're doing now. You know, I, I you send you'll send me pictures from the coast. They'll bring bring rocks back from the coast, or it seems like the geology of the Pacific Northwest. Which again, you know, I just have to say, growing up in Colorado, the Pacific Northwest was. Um, was a foreign universe growing up in Colorado to, uh, you know, a kid in a small town in rural Colorado, like ranching life, Colorado, where I grew up, it was very, very rural. And, and actually it's interesting at the coffee shop in Scappoose at cathedral, there's a, there's a kid in there who makes great coffee, but he was, um, he was homeschooled. And he was just telling me this morning, he's like, I'm going on a road trip. And I was like, oh, where are you going? And he's like, I'm going to Los Angeles. And I was like, cool. Have you ever been before? And he's like, no. And I said, have you ever left the state of Oregon? And he said, yeah, once I went to Colorado. And I was like, okay. You know, it's like, wow, this is like a, you know, just as far as just sometimes we take for granted the mobility of the modern world, but like not everybody has that luxury. Oh, just in the, we took the little kid across the street into Portland and his eyes were just huge. I go, have you been into Portland before? Uh-uh. They'd only gone to Longview. They never went into Portland. And I thought that was the advantage to this area was uh-huh. we have, you could go into Portland when you want a decent meal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To do something. But yeah, this area out here, they were, it was kind of interesting to meet these families, these people that were just so focused in St. Helens, yeah. you know, yeah. and you meet these and very conservative. Right. And it's kind of good for me. It kind of makes me realize that they could be nice guys, sure. you know, sure. in these huge trucks. <laughs> right, right, right. And well, especially now because your your son is a big truck guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And all his friends, it's like, it's amazing. But. Yeah, that that's, it's it's been a real, it's been a real, um, it's been a real eye opener living yeah, in your Columbia son, County. You for got the, that coming that's up. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Trestle yeah, Beach. Watch up. out for Trestle Beach. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was such it was such an unknown. It was such an unknown universe in Colorado. And I would hear about the Pacific Northwest and how much it rained and it was a temperate rainforest. And I was just like, what must that be like? And then somehow I ended up here. And a lot, you know, it's interesting. A lot of my uh, my class in high school, small high school, you know, a hundred kids in my class, 
500 kids in the whole high school. Um, I would say probably over a dozen people ended up in the Pacific Northwest and, and, it, you know, as far as I was concerned, it was like the hinterlands. <laughs> well, that's Colorado. why I keep telling people, oh yeah, Portland's over. It's like way over. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, the same way, that's the same way you talk about room in, uh, in the wood kiln. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's oh right. no, no, really kind of so-so results. Oh, Not a lot of room yeah. in the kiln. Uh-huh, yeah. you know, discour- a little discouraging uh-huh. commentary. You don't want a wood fire. It's, you really it's don't not want no, 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 no. It's, uh... <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean... There was almost like a sadness when Hiroshi's kiln retired. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, because yeah. and it is. It's it was firing so well, and his wife was interesting. Keiko said when we asked, "Well, could we get to get get a group together and fire this?" and she said, "The dragon has left. The dragon, the spirit of the dragon has left." And I was like how can you argue with that? Yeah. You know, we're just like, we had to respect, you know, her wishes, but I'm not on the end of the uh, maintenance part of it. So I think there has to be ongoing, but we're hopefully maybe his kids might take it on. Mm. Um, but where I'm firing now is about two miles from there, Jamie Allen. And he was, um, what worked with Hiroshi fired with Hiroshi and so now we're he built a kiln very he built the Naborigama mm-hmm. um the smaller of the two and that's where we fire now you know I still haven't given up on the dreams of the Anagama on the hillside here yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's still it still just hovers in my mind as something that that needs to happen yeah, yeah yeah I think it's uh especially after the Triscoli collective which you were you know, behind MVP. the scenes, pe- people don't know that the Triskley Collective would not have happened without Jan Rentenar. Oh, they were such a hoot. They, what a great guy. They were, it was fantastic. But the legwork that you did to help us put that together so that we could even host them was like, I, I mean, you're the unsung hero of the oh, Triskley Project, you. and it was wildly successful. Oh, that uh, was fun to watch. But it would not have happened without you. Oh, thank you. But anyways, uh, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. thank you for that. But, you uh, you know, having them on site with a, an artist in residency, it was the first artist in re- residency that really had a true artist in residency vibe. They were here every day for almost two weeks, you know, doing work in the studio, being informed by the garden and the environment. We went, you know, we went and saw the Briscoes. We went and saw Yosemite. They saw the environments that inspired my work here. And that inspired and informed some of their work as well. But like such a special occasion. And then, you know, putting together the wood fire, which several of the pieces were fired in Jamie's kiln that, mm-hmm. that you took. Mm-hmm. And then the others mm-hmm. in East Creek, which you guys connected us to East Creek. Uh, and it just made me realize, wow, to to have the ability to facilitate a real artist in residency on site was something that I had always like thought that would be cool, but I didn't know what it looked like. And that was the first time that I was like, oh, this is what it could look like. Well, I think that is one of your better skill, one of your skill sets is that you're so good at working with artists mm-hmm. and it you can see it by the things that you've had made. You know, you are very good at working with people and knowing what their strengths are, you know, and supporting that and supporting their vision. And I think that's not everybody can do that. And I think you do it really well. Oh, and I think you. it shows up in the your displays and stuff that like that one, that origami one for the Japanese gardens. Oh, the new gates coming up here. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Those are just killer. Yeah. You haven't seen the shade structure yet, have you? Or I, have you? They were bringing the first one in. And I thought it was just going to be one 
one. Oh. <laughs> and then I told. <laughs> what fun would that be? Yeah, I told Ira, is that crane still there? Because I'm bringing up one of my big pots. Oh. <laughs> and I want it yeah, on right. the top shelf. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's amazing. But yeah, that's amazing. But I think that is, um, that's what's amazing about you is your ability to work with us, work with artists and let their vision come through. Wow, that's a huge compliment. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the last thing, like I said, the last thing I want to do is try to tell somebody what to make because I, I'm, I, I'm still in, I'm still in my narrative arc as a creative individual, still very much on the upward trajectory of learning and being influenced mm -hmm. by and ins inspired. I haven't in any way crossed over to where I could say this is my approach. This is yeah. my style. You know, it's like, oh man, I I hope that's a I hope that's in the very distant future. I don't want I don't want to turn the corner on that. I know I think I from what I observe of artists, I think there will probably come a time where I lose some of my creative malleability, but I'm trying to take as much advantage of it as I possibly can right now. Because when we did the Artisans Cup in 2015... Oh, that was amazing. I, I really recognized with that, you only have the ability to do things like that at certain times in your life. And if you don't capture that moment uh. and you don't pull the trigger when you have the the mental emotional physical sometimes monetary sometimes monetary limitations I, I try to find solutions after i've already started the process which is probably not smart but it's like i only have one moment where i'm going to be able to do this so i better do it now or forever hold my peace mm -hmm. and one of the things that's always sort of lived with me is the fear of living with regret and there are things that I have bypassed due to responsibilities, limitations, et cetera, that, you know, I still think about. And I still think, gosh, I wish I had done that. And th that's the worst sensation to me, mm -hmm. to really mm -hmm. wish I had done something. Um, but of course, after you experience enough uh, projects that are, 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 are particularly painful, you do start to have a little bit of a flinch <laughs> response, you know, a reactivity to like, oh man, do I want to do that? You know, but, um, certainly in the, certainly in the, uh, shade structure creation, it, it has been a, a, a really challenging project. I would say I would agree <laughs> challenging project. You know, I, I couldn't do it again. I, I probably had I waited six months would not have done it, you know. But I'm glad that we did it because yeah. it's, it's this is a this is a structure that will it's be also built to last. Thankfully, it'll be so we're not here long. Have to revisit it. It'll be here long after long after uh, you know I'm gone. From <laughs> it'll be on the Columbia County <laughs> sightseeing. Well, yeah. Really, yeah, there was some kind of a cathedral temple here. The temple, ago, yeah. <laughs> the the of hits. Mariah, yeah. 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 Well, I think sometimes you have to realize when I'm like, oh, God, I can't believe I didn't do that or I did or you something went wrong. Well, things go wrong for us because we're doing a lot of stuff. Yeah. You know, and yeah. sometimes I have to remind myself if I was just sitting home watching TV, yeah, I'd have a 100% success rate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you got to, when you risk it, you, know, you also risk, yeah, things not oh, working. But yeah, interesting. God, yeah. that's a great statement. If you're watching TV, you have a 100% success rate. <laughs> you're doing it. You're doing it. God. Good, good perspective. Yeah, you got to be willing Jan. to fail to really succeed. I think, right? Is that part of that too? Yeah, I mean, it's like, yeah. It's like you're saying, making you gotta, the ugly part. You got to make a mistake once in a while. Yeah. you know, if you don't make a mistake once in a while, you're not going to have. You, you can't keep reaching higher. 
You know, yeah, yeah. Maintaining a plateau is is much easier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What does that look like? I mean, you, you people that are listening to our discussion here probably know you because of the association with bonsai naturally, right? I mean, this is mm-hmm. a bonsai podcast for the most part, although we do veer into a lot of other subject matter, like the epicenter of our relationships on this podcast is typically bonsai related. But I mean, your bigger body of work is your sculptures and your figures that relate more to legends. And you talked about some of the Japanese legends, but you also work a lot with indigenous legends from local tribes in the Pacific Northwest region and stuff. Um, When did all of that curiosity start? And when did you, when did you, was that the beginning of your sculptural body of work? Because you're saying you went to school, it was very technical. It, you sort of got into that space where it's like, gosh, somebody's got to tell me what to make. And then you went to Evergreen and and had a real realization, or at least maybe you were freed from that. But when did the legends and the fascination with these stories and, and, and the indigenous tribes start? Um, I think it goes back to my mom was always saying that you had to, your piece, your work had to be unique. That had to be something that was different. And um, when I started reading Japanese legends, were the first ones I got into. They're so clever. They have these great little humor to them, or something like that. And I would envision these characters and went, "Oh!" And that, and then to me, it wasn't just a sculpture of a Japanese man. This is the sage, the sparrow sage, and he had a story to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and when doing the Native American. I think it's interesting in the Northwest, we often get associated with the Alaskan natives. And right here in the Willamettes, we had these amazing natives. And so I started looking at it and I did the legend for the Willamette Falls in Oregon City, which is a story about (laughs) coyote and meadowlark. And to me, these stories are you know, they told these stories for a lot of times there's a morality to them or there's just, and to me, it brings these sculptures to life. Mm -hmm. It gave them uh, a story behind them. And so that's where I think the, um, with my sculptures, I, I used to, my business name was Legendary Art because I based everything on legends. And, um, there's, now there's this talk of, cultural appropriation and i've thought about that you know i'm a celtic back i'm irish but celtic i've done a couple but um and i asked one time lillian pitt who's a native american and i said what do you feel about me doing and she said as long as you honor the legend and that's what i feel like i'm doing is these stories get lost and like the Japanese ones, a lot of the younger Japanese don't even know these ones anymore. Right. And to me, they're just lovely. And so I've, I struggle with that. Am I doing, you know, should I? But I think if you're doing Native American because it sells, then you're doing cultural appropriation. Yeah. I'm not doing it because it sells. I'm doing it because it interests me. And I think it is not. it should be out there. These, mm-hmm. these legends are great, you know, mm-hmm. need to be out there. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. What a, well, and you, and it's, it's your immediate environment as well. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, like to, to a large degree, you're being informed by the same things that informed the tribes that existed here and stuff. It's a complex conversation, but do you feel like your, your, your sculptures in terms of your, the, the sculptures that you create that sort of embody these legends, do you feel like that has pushed your body of work to to be more innovative or creative or um 
I guess I see a depth in your sculptures of of maintaining or encompassing a story inside of a singular statuesque representation. And I always find it interesting how you pull those elements together. You know, a coin, a stone, a plant, a bag, uh, a tool, uh, a gesture, a cloak, uh, whatever it is. It's like mm-hmm. you tell me the story and then you you show these elements of the legend that's in this singular sculpture. And it's just like, wow. You well, know, if you approach that without knowing that, you'd be like, okay, so this is a sculpture of an individual seems to be carrying some things. I don't really. But then when you tell the the legend, it's just like. Oh, Jan, Th- that that's was amazing. I, I did this one, and it was uh, I envisioned this old. He was called the Memory Keeper, and he was collecting, and he had a basket on his back, and I wanted to put a tree in it. And I'm thinking, ha ha ha, this is what is it about the tree? Right, <laughs> right. So I asked you, and I said, Hey Ryan, could you put a tree in this for me? And you go, oh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, as he's doing it, I go, oh, Jesus, I didn't ask him how much. And I'm such a not a business person. I'm thinking, oh, my God, what if he turns around and tells me it's $200 for this tree? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you get it this all done. This is payback for when I had to pay her for her pot. <laughs> and my tree was already in the pot. And Jan, Jan, Jan realized she had the upper hand. So I'm like, File that uh, away for future. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. So I go, well, uh, Ryan, uh, what do I owe you for this? And he goes, ah, I was just hooking you up. I go, oh, thank God. <laughs> I wanted to see it. I wanted to see it. I thought it that was, was so fantastic. was uh, Artisan Cup. And this guy comes over and he goes, you know, my wife's been complaining I've been buying too much bonsai trees. But this is not really a bone. This is like a sculpture. And I go, yeah, yeah. He goes, well. I'm going to go have a cigarette and think about it. So he goes out and the other vendors come over. Is he buying it? I go, yeah, (laughs) that cigarette doesn't kill him. (laughs) So he goes back in and he goes, well, I'm going up to Ryan's tomorrow and maybe I'll pick it up after. And he calls me up from here and he goes, I'm leaving for Florida and two hours in the airport. Can you wrap it up? And so I don't know if it ever made it to Florida. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Holy cow. But yeah, I just remember that panic of going, oh my God, what if Ryan tells me this tree is $200? <laughs> <laughs> and then I needed to yet, sell it because I had to 2, keep it alive. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> I would be worried about like four digits more than, more than three digits with Ryan. That's right. Yeah, where is that 200 tree? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. Yeah, if if that, you're listening to Florida to and you have that, we want to hear it. We want to see it. Send us a picture. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so fun. Gosh. And I mean, do you still get the same thrill out of out of making not only your legendary figures, but I guess like even your bonsai ceramics, like do, do, the, do the bonsai vessels give you the same... I don't know, feedback or payback? Because uh, there's got to be some return on your energy that you put into this. Yeah, it's so funny. After all these years, every time I open that kiln, I'm excited. I was like, oh, look at this. Oh, check right. this out. And the bonsai pots are so nice because anything can happen to them. With when I do, I do Hote, the god of good luck. And one time he got like the blue spots that are gorgeous on a bonsai pot went right down his face uh-huh. and was just, you know, and when I, my figure to pieces, they'll either come out incredible or they'll just be a mess uh-huh. with the bonsai pots. The bigger the mess, the better. I'm right. like, Oh, look at this. <laughs> you know, it's like it en- enhances it. So they're nice. Cause I can really enjoy it and not worry about it. I know that anything that happens to them is just going to make them spectacular, you know? Wow. Wow. That's fun. 
So you like it then? You like making the bonsai? Oh yeah, pots. yeah. I think it's. I enjoy doing it, and it too. It it. Uh, I realize going to the coast all the time, and now when I'm at the beach, I'm always looking at the hillsides. I'm rarely <laughs> looking at the ocean, and I'm just fascinated by how rocks affect each other. Mm-hmm. And we just blithely will pick up a rock. You don't realize that rock has been grinding on that other rock for thousands of years. Right. You know, and to me, that's so fascinating. And to see those trees that are hanging onto the cliffs, you know, how they do that and how that informs their shape, you know. Very yeah. cool. Interesting. Interesting. That's why I got to get you more to the coast there. Yeah, I have not. You keep I, going to the desert. I got yeah, I got to be honest. <laughs> I, I, I am an inland boy. Yeah. I'm an inland boy. Uh, the ocean is 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 utterly frightening to me. Oh, it's it's a little too infinite for for Mister Neil to huh. be able to feel. But you have uh, like a surfing shark story or I something do. Too. Yeah, that kind of, I do. That might be in the I back do. of your mind I somewhere do. too. I got. Oh well, you can't swim in the Oregon <laughs> coast. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's just for looking at. Right. Right. Yeah. No. Look I, at the haystacks. <laughs> I got a strong gesture. Uh, from a shark that this is not where you belong in college <laughs> and ever since then the ocean has been a you know a death I guess I view it more as a death trap than uh, anything else no I mean I find the ocean to be majestic I went to school on the coast of California um, but it, it it just feels ultimately ominous to me yeah, yeah yeah it doesn't come with some like calming sensation or vibe i just i feel super um threatened yeah when I'm, we, i gotta get you down there to the arcadia ocean. this little beach and oh my god the hillsides and you can see in the hills there is some vertebrae of some big old well or something because you can see these white things that are just evenly spaced and you just look and you can see the old old trees that have gotten buried Mm-hmm. That are now being exposed. Oh, it's killer. So we won't even look at the ocean. Wow. Okay. That, that, we'll keep our eyes on the hillside. That would that would that would help a lot. Actually, that would be that would be very. Uh, that might help me. Yeah. No. I think I think in general too. You know the the when I went to school on the coast, I was always driving inland to the sierra nevadas oh interesting you know and like yeah yeah it, it just sort of has it sort of has been a continual theme for me i'm seeking uh-huh. i'm seeking the mountains on on a continual basis and when once i'm in the mountains i just feel totally at ease huh it really huh. it really is for me just like my my sort of center yeah, as far yeah. as environments and and the desert has been a place of discomfort as well um, but it's certainly been become something that I'm more comfortable with, probably because of I've sort of put myself in that space a lot more in recent years. But the ocean is the ocean is is an area that I, I'm going to have to work on a little bit more, <laughs> especially because you know I'm pretty committed. Obviously, I would say fairly committed to being here. Uh, I don't know anybody else who would buy this place at this point. We're over improving. It does have a certain style to it. (laughs) Certain style. In order to buy uh, this particular parcel of property, you have to cultivate at least 800 bonsai trees. (laughs) Or Or it's a completely ridiculous purchase. Yeah. Yeah, it does have a certain style, doesn't it? I like the way you put that. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's going to be nice. You know, I've sort of got I was I was pushed into remodeling the house. But like the house, interestingly enough, was the thing that attracted me to this place most. Because after living in Japan inside of a really, really small, tight, confined space, I I found that to be so comfortable. Well, so you've got those beautiful windows. Yeah. You know, that makes that you've got that view. Mm-hmm. You've got the killer view. Yeah, but but that small, like a small, <laughs> a really small confined space, I feel like it always felt to me like it was limiting the things I didn't need. It down to just a, a, absolutely what I depended on, yeah. and, and yeah. that 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 lifestyle for me was awesome. Now, yeah. here's what happened at Mirai: is I was able to, as a bonsai professional, justify filling the external space with everything that I really probably didn't need but wanted and could justify. <laughs> you never know when you're going to need these stands just outside the door. That's here right. That that, that's right. Of- that have been there for 13 years, and most of them have not been moved since they were put there. There's a little dust over there. There's some dust. There's some dust. Yeah. It could be, you know. I feel like the I feel like uh each space at Mirai gets utilized to its maximum potential though. And that gives mm-hmm. me tremendous that gives me tremendous satisfaction. That's one thing that I see in your studio that also I think gives it its magic is you utilize every square inch of that space. <laughs> and it's just like every corner has a personal touch. That the sensation of being in a space like that, you can't duplicate that. You can't build it. You can't make it. You can't pay somebody. You have to embed yourself in it. And you always see something different every time you go to jam. Every time. There's always something like that. Every time. What's going on over here? Though that's been here for 12 years or 20 yeah. years. Yeah, sure. Well, and I think that's interesting. At Stark Street Studios, um, I've been there about 20 years and some of the other artists and you see their old the other work and it's interesting to see like you say seeing some of the other the older pots and stuff um i came across some of the ones from uh back at sherem youth time Uh oh my gosh i was like oh that's the yeah 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 it's interesting to see the progression bonsai northwest was a special place too wasn't it a trip oh man sharon was so cool yeah she was so cool what a legend too i mean Mm mm-hmm uh, there's a tree in the garden that uh, that she collected. Oh, the big rocky. The big rocky. Yeah, that's yeah. Chris's tree now. You know when? Oh yeah. Because her, her son John sort of sold the business that exists. You know, in in Seattle or south of Seattle proper. Tequila-ish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and there were trees there that Sharon had collected on some of the original Yamadori trips in the Rockies with Dick Melody and Harold Sasaki back in wow. the day when they were taking bonsai safaris. Uh, you know, you're talking like the 60s. Wow. Uh, wow. Which isn't which isn't long in the life of a tree. It's not long in the life of a culture that has longevity, you know, coming from Italy where you're like three, 3,000 years, 4,000 mm-hmm. years. And like we were dissecting where the olives came from on Puglia and the, the you know, the Mesapi and, and the Romans and like all of these, th- and then the Greeks that set the foundation. And it's just like, okay, well that's that. We're going to set that over there. Right. In our young bonsai culture in North America, that's old to us, you know. <laughs> a tree collected in the '60s out of the Rockies that still exists is, 
you know, 60, 70 years. Feels pretty incredible for 60, us, 70 right? years as, a, as in a bonsai container. That's that, that's really, I mean, yes, there's like trees in Japan that have been in bonsai containers for 100, 150, 200. I mean, I know there's sort sort of, you know, discussions of the Hiroshima tree that came to the National Collection in D.C. being over 300 years in a bonsai container. Whether that is or isn't necessarily the case, you know, it's like mm-hmm. s- still e- the 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 feat of keeping a tree alive in a container. That means that every day for the past sixty or seventy years, somebody didn't screw up, you know. And when you think about that, over three hundred years, every day wow. for three hundred years, somebody didn't screw up, or at least they didn't screw up enough to compromise the viability of that living organism that is the tree. And that's really freaking interesting to me. That's really special. And again, something that you can't buy, something that you can't make, something that you can't duplicate. It makes you think of the spirit of that tree. Oh, for sure. You know, that tree had a will to live. That's a heart, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And this this takes me back to the ancient tree thing. You're talking about these Doug firs and this black Mm -hmm. walnut on this property on the Willamette. Uh, And I'm thinking about, you know, the giant sequoias. I'm thinking about the redwoods. We've gone and seen the bristle cones and spent some significant time in these ancient trees. We were just in, in, in Puglia, Italy, where the Roman olives uh, exist, and those are 3,000 years old. And you, you look at these trees and you say, what is the chance in all of the seeds that exist on an annual basis, semi-annual, depending on the cone cycle, etc.? What is the chance that a tree, a, a seedling, you know, and we saw a whole field, a giant sequoia in, in Kings Canyon where the massive fire burned uh, last summer. Oh, and we man. walked through the burn sections and we saw the trees that had half burned on the perimeter. We saw the trees that had been saved. And you saw all of these seedlings, thousands of seedlings sprouting again. And you're saying, what is the, the, the chance that that one seedling right there, that one in this patch of a thousand, which is in a patch of you know millions and millions of reproductive seedlings stimulated by fire germinating by cone production, that it's going to reach three thousand years old. Yeah. You know, you're talking what one in a one in a trillion? Well, I was looking at this black it's walnut. We have managed to keep it from reproducing. Ah, you know, here's this, and how many black walnuts does it put down, and the squirrels and all that, and we have mowed, we have oh, weeded. Yeah. <laughs> There's not one left. I went, you know, now I'm going, we need to you know, let some of those grow. Yeah. You know, let oh, yeah. some of those, you know. If, if, if the walnut is going to continue to exist. Because yeah. there is a fine, there is a finality to the life of a walnut or any broadleaf tree. You know, oh, as oh. a, as a, and, and we, we, we learned about that a little bit in Italy as well. But like, you just think about people are fascinated by, pe- people are fascinated by the odds of winning the lottery or getting struck by lightning or getting hit in the head by a falling plane part, you know, like mm-hmm. all, all of the random things that happen in the world. When you stand in front of an ancient tree, you have to realize that that has defied more yeah. Of a lopsided, awe-inspiring uh, odd to uh. get to that point than any human-made factor or figure. Mm-hmm. That is an anomaly of anomalies of anomalies. It's like urban trees. You look at some of these urban trees that have had their all their limbs cut for the overhanging lines and all yeah. this. You're like, how do they keep going? Yeah. And some of them are just gnarly. They totally. are not giving in. You totally. Know? And it's then you, amazing. And then you look at some of the urban trees like the, the English use. Mm-hmm. You know, in the UK, growing around these cathedrals that have two, three thousand years worth of history, you know, and you're talking about the medieval era and the dark ages and like these 
these massive ficti almost fictitious obviously they were real life events but we don't relate to that we just mm -hmm. read stories and try to imagine this this dark gloomy time or these wars and these you know religious conflicts and these cultural conflicts and the rise and fall of society it's just like that tree's been and again it's an anomaly of an anomaly of an anomaly yeah. to have survived yeah. like that and you know Changes in the climate over that oh, time. Oh man, can, periods, just, can you define the fascination yeah. of uh, of a of a tree that has been alive on the face of this earth for three thousand, four thousand, five thousand years? It is impossible. It is impossible to me. You know, it 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 absolutely stands to be, you know, awe inspiring in the same way that the pyramids, you know, of Egypt yeah. or or any of the other, you know, the aqueducts or um, Petra, any of these things, uh, Gobleki Tepe, any of these major, major demonstrations of human longevity. It's like pfft, that tree that to me, that tree takes it all because it's because yeah. it's a, it's been alive that whole time. It, 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 it wasn't built as a as a as a material. It's been alive that whole time. Well, and I think it too. I've been reading this book, uh, braiding sweetgrass, and they—it's a Native American—and they talk about how they tree is a verb, is a person in their language. Mm. And I think we're just now we cut down trees without a thought. And now especially I think here, we're especially in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, you just see the whole hillside going, and now I think we're starting to recognize. That just because we can domineer, just because we can cut it, doesn't mean you should cut it. Yeah. You know, and that's what I was saying about this black walnut it was like, you know, we, it's put up with us. We've kind of, I think our mindset is we've put up with that black walnut for all these years. Right. I'm like, that black walnut is put up with us, you yeah. know? And then you wonder too with the other, there's three big old growth firs. When that black walnut gets cut, on some level, those firs know that, you know? I start thinking about that, how trees, and it's certainly, you know, not on any human, but there is an energy, I'm sure, that happens when Hormonal those things. Response. Hormones, yeah. uh, biological connections in the microbial highway. You know, it's like this is... The, the 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 science and the the esoteric discussions of our trees sentient beings uh, do they think and all of this stuff it's like it's becoming a pretty murky you know it used to just be rejected yeah you did it because yeah, yeah they were just a plant you know and i think it is a slippery slope i think we do have a tendency to humanitize you know i mean trees are definitely not but there is, I think we do have to recognize there's an energy there. I don't know, you know, I don't know. I, I, I think you do have to be careful and obviously you have compassion for your own, mm -hmm. which is where humans feel like a human life is more valuable. But, but mm -hmm. you know, I also think one of the things that has come to the forefront of my mind over time is the tree is the constant protagonist. Uh, if, if a tree is not destroying the built environment and a tree is not in the way of civilization and a tree is just existing as a tree, it, it is a pretty constant protagonist and consistent protagonist. Oh. And so when you think about that, and I'm not even saying that that changes with the built environment, we're imposing ourselves and the tree becomes an obstacle for us that mm -hmm. we've, you know, and, and, and I, I'm not saying like, oh my gosh, cast away everybody that cut down a tree or anything like that. Right, That's right. Not at all what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just think it's really interesting when you look at intelligence 
and we quantify intelligence as the ability to reason, the ability to reason has given human beings the 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 capacity to make some very bad decisions for themselves. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, and it's like, is that intelligence? Because the tree can't make a decision that kills itself. You know, it can't ingest alcohol, it can't do drugs, it can't you know, do oh, do do these thought. things that self harm. Yeah. They a tree can't self harm. A tree takes in uh, the resources, it compartmentalizes them, expels them, adapts to adjust. You know, and and finds a way to be malleable in the environment. And 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 maybe science in the future via you know the microbial highways. Maybe you'll find that there are certain trees that are just assholes <laughs> that are out there. Kicking other trees' ass, making things challenging, you know, that dang killing oak. them for fun, you know, like I'm just going to inject my tannic content into you. And, you know, so far we haven't found that to be true. So it does romanticize the tree as this very protagonistic organism on earth. And it's pretty tough to walk through an ancient grove and be like, wow, you guys are assholes. Can't do it. You can't do it. You know, it's like <laughs> 5,000 years, you're still sitting here kicking it. And like, what have you seen on a daily basis? Sun up, sun down. Man, a lot of those. It's crazy. That's crazy. It's really crazy. It's a, it's an interesting, I think trees are at the forefront of culture, culturally minded art and discussions. And obviously the climate discussion and the, and, and the changing conditions on earth and the extremes of fires and temperatures and moisture deprivation that are starting to impact these trees that have survived this long. It's like, wow, man, we, we, we are alive at such a fascinating time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it doesn't have to be all bad doesn't have to be all bad there's there's a lot of good things happening right now as well environmentally uh there's some changes that are are certainly going to disrupt this this uh this time capsule that is this living organism though it's really and that that's been the general consensus is that the ancient trees are going to be the the ones that succumb the species may live on but the ancients are going to be the ones that succumb to things yeah 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 and you can see like out here the big ones you think oh look at all those trees and then you see this really huge one and you realize how small all those other trees it was what do they call it the spar tree or something the one that got left and you're like oh wow Yeah. yeah yeah do you know why they leave that tree isn't it the one that they pulls all the other trees up the hill uh, it, it was the it, it was the anchor for the logging, That's what right? I'm yeah, that was always. You, I, I, I thought I, I've always had a few hypotheses. I'm sure this is easy to ask somebody. I just never have, mm-hmm. and you brought it up. Uh, but I always thought either they used it as a height reference and age reference. They used it to potentially passively repopulate. Oh, or or they used it. It was a device oh. in the logging practice, and I don't know which of those it is. Yeah, and maybe it's all of those. Maybe it's none of those. We should ask somebody about that. We should ask, we should ask Steen about that. Steen would know. He knows about foresting and log- logging stuff. Yeah, that would be interesting. Oh, good stuff. Do you uh do you do you ever go into like have you explored the national parks or any of of these natural areas that we have in North America or has your reference to nature really been formed by the Pacific Northwest in your immediate vicinity here? Yeah, yeah. It was like every summer going to the coast and um yeah, I now I'm the opposite of you. I don't think of going I when I think of vacation, I think of the ocean. Uh-huh. I think of rivers. <laughs> oh, rivers. Know? Okay. So yeah. you're a water person. Yeah, yeah. So I would always go that direction. Would you consider that a personality trait? Uh, I'm a cancer. I'm a moon child, so probably. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. I feel like you just flow. <laughs> I do. I feel like you just flow. I feel a little bit more like rock, 
I feel a little bit more like rock. Well, you, what's your element? This is the what's your element conversation. I, yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. I, you know, that you you find those people that are like the wind. You know, they're un mm-hmm. they're uncapturable. You find those people that are adaptable like water. You find those people that are rigid like rock. I think that is why probably I do the freeform style because I can. I have a lot of tenacity. I think uh-huh. I can work with different and see how things are going. I'm not as as rigid. Uh-huh. That's what comes up for me with the Sakagoya Ikebana because, like with bonsai, it's very definite and it happens to be one of the older schools. It's very formal, and what I like, I. I'm surprised that I like to do it because it is so exacting, um, and it helps me be more. And <laughs> Reverend Kobeji will say, so Jan, tell me, what is this? I'm like, well, that's the tie. Well, no, it's not quite, but uh-huh. <laughs> I'm always a kind well, it's kind of like that. It's kind of there. <laughs> and he's like, no. But yeah. And I always have to, I always think about, uh, too, with bonsai is, Somebody came up with these rules. This is not handed down by God. You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. So they're like, this is the rule. Well, yeah, but somebody came up with that rule. <laughs> it's negotiable. <laughs> this is negotiable. <laughs> so good to sit down with you. Thanks for making the time. Well, good to visit with yeah. you. Yeah. We've been friends a long time. We now. have. We have been friends a long time. You've watched Taff grow up. Yep. It's been uh it's been a fruitful both creatively together. You know, friendship, uh, professional. It's it's been really it's been a really wild ride, and we're only thirteen years in. Yeah, you're yeah. you're still you're still in the I would say in the heart of your creative body of work. Yeah, which yeah. is really inspiring and continue to move me forward in in my own creative endeavors and, and in, inform my my work and process and bone size. So, I thank you for the creative energy because I I get a lot of it from your work. So keep it up. Thank you, thank you. Well, knowing you makes the difference in my pots. It Aww. really helps me make them functional. I appreciate that. Lonnie's going to be taking beautiful photographs of your work. Who has uh, to do the measuring? That's the hard one. Lonnie, <laughs> Lonnie, Lonnie, Lonnie figures that out as well. <laughs> uh, six inches over here, four over uh-huh, here, yeah. three here. <laughs> at two at the lowest dip. But we'll figure that out when we put the tree in it. Right. Uh, we love you, Jan. Thanks so much. Thank you, Ryan. All right. Take care.